Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon. And we take your calls for this hour without commercial breaks so that we can answer your questions if we can. Obviously, I can't answer every question that could be asked, but we do spend our time trying to help you get over some of the difficulties that you find in the Bible or in the Christian life. And we'll be glad to talk about those. If you disagree with the host or even disagree with Christianity, we'd be glad to have you Join us and, and share, you know, your your struggles and maybe your disagreements, whatever. Uh, right now, our lines are full, which means you can't get through right now, but um, but you can in a little while. In a few minutes, lines will open up, so I want to give you the number to call. If you'll wait just a bit and call, you may get through. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484. 484-5737. And uh, let's see, I don't have much to announce except that this coming Saturday, I should announce this every day, we will be having a an online debate. Uh, our friend Max, the atheist, who calls here fairly often and has been calling for some time, he uh, wished to have an online debate, so we arranged it. He arranged it, I approved it, and uh, so we'll be debating this Saturday night Live, I'm sure it'll be, uh, you know, I'm sure it'll afterwards be on YouTube. Um, and at this point, I don't even know how to log into it. I've actually written to Max and asked him to give me that information. He might not have it yet either. But uh, anyway, by Saturday at 5 o'clock p.m. Uh, Pacific time, we should be set up and ready to go, and we will post the login information for that debate at our website, thenarrowpath.com, and at our Facebook page. So... Um, just so you know, that's coming up this Saturday. Tell your friends, put it on your calendar, Saturday night, 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. All right? And that's all you need to announce, I think. Let's talk to Eric from Compton, California. Eric, welcome. Hey, Steve. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, Revelation, uh, the first chapter, first verse. I got into a little back and forth with the Jehovah's Witness. I think he was, he was trying to prove to me that Jesus wasn't all knowing. And when he asked me, I just automatically said, yes, he is. And then he went to this verse and showed me how it says that uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. His question was, why did God have to give it to him if he if he's all knowing? The only thing I could think of is maybe he gave it to him after he ascended to heaven, after the resurrection, because when he was on earth, he did say he didn't know the times that the Father had put in his uh, in his hands. So could you elaborate on that uh, scripture for me, John, of Revelation 1? Yeah, well, your speculation is precisely right, I think. Uh, you're right. Jesus was not all-knowing. He claimed not to know everything. Uh, when he came, uh, When God became a man, he had to strip himself down to our size and took on some of the handicaps of being human, including that he had to learn. It says in Luke chapter 2 that as a child, Jesus had to grow in wisdom. He had to learn. We know he had to learn to read, for example, learn to talk, just like any baby. He was not uh, omniscient uh, when he came to earth. But he did, uh, he did, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit often gives gifts, uh, even to the apostles. You know, in the book of Acts, it's not just Jesus who had these gifts of prophecy and the word of knowledge and knowing what people were thinking on some occasions, but not all the time. He didn't know all that. He didn't. He never claimed to be omniscient. 
when God gave him something, some insights into the future or something that people were thinking that he would not otherwise have known. That was a special gift of the Holy Spirit given to him on that occasion. But when his disciples asked him about the time of his coming, and especially when he was talking about uh, when heaven and earth will pass away in Matthew 24, he said, of that day and hour, nobody knows, not the angels of, of heaven, nor even the Son, meaning himself. He referred to himself as the Son. So he said, only, only the Father knows that. So Jesus himself taught that he didn't know everything. Now, you're right, when he ascended, I suppose we can assume that he knows everything now. Back, he's back to, to heaven. In his, you know, remember, when he, when he was about to die, uh, in, uh, in John 17, he prayed that father, the Father would give him the glory that he had before. In other words, he had, mm-hmm. he, he had laid aside his, his glorious attributes to become a man, but he is now looking forward to having those restored to him as he ascended. And so uh, our assumption, since we don't know otherwise, is that the privileges he had and the abilities he had as God, uh, before he came to earth, he now has again, now that he's gone back. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, he, he went back as a man uh, who had not known everything. So whatever he had to know was given to him. By God, and, and so the revelation is given to him by God. Now we have to understand too that Christian theology teaches that Jesus' entire life, you know, is derived from his Father. Um, that you know the, I, the the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is never explained beyond the point of uh, you know ambiguity in the Bible, but but uh, it is understood by I think all Christians that Jesus' very life. And therefore, his knowledge and everything else about it being alive is derived from the Father. Uh, that doesn't mean he doesn't know everything. But if he does know everything, he derives that omniscience from the Father. So to say that God the Father gave him this could be understood a number of ways. But certainly there's no reason to insist that Jesus knew everything on his own. And certainly he said he didn't when he was on earth. So I don't think that Jehovah's Witnesses have made much of a, a case there. Okay, well, thanks, Steve. I appreciate that. I don't need it. <laughs> thanks for your answer. I appreciate it. All right. Good talking to you, Eric. Thanks for your call. Okay, Louis from Compton, California. Louis, welcome. Yes, how, how are you? Thank you very much. Good. This is my first time on your show. Uh, my friend Eric told me about the show, so I'm going to start listening more. And I just have a quick question. Um, Psalm 78:25 says that God said some men with angels food. And I looked up about 10 or 15 different translations, and it says that it was angel food. And so I didn't know if you knew what that was. Well, it, it's actually a reference to manna. It's, uh, the, Psalm 78 is, is recalling God's treatment of Israel when they're in the wilderness. And when they needed food, they, uh, Moses prayed for them, and God gave them manna and fed them every day with manna until they were no longer uh, wandering. Once they settled into uh, the promised land, the manna stopped being given, and it came from heaven. Um, you know, even in John chapter 6, uh, manna is referred to as bread from heaven. Um, so I, to say it was angel's food is perhaps poetic because the Psalms are poems. They're not, they're not straightforward historical narrative. They refer back to historical events, but they cast them in a, in a poetic way. Because the Psalms, are each, all of them are, are poems. And poetry doesn't always speak in the most literal terms. Sometimes it's impressionistic. Sometimes there are flights of fancy in the way they word things. 
I mean, for example, in Genesis 1, it tells us that God created the, the dry land to appear by speaking it. You know, let dry land appear, and it happened. In one of the Psalms, it talks about the creation of dry land. It talks about how God shaped it with his hands like a potter, you know, shapes it. Well, uh, that's a poetic description of God shaping the dry land, but it's not how it really happened. So this, but, but see, poetry very often is not literal, and, and people don't expect it to be unless they're hyper-literalists. So in saying it was angels' food, I mean, the poet is suggesting that, you know, this, this is the food that comes from heaven. That must be what the angels in heaven eat, though he's not insisting upon that as a, I mean, we're, we're not told that anywhere outside the Psalms, that this was angels' food. But it was clearly not of earthly origin, and therefore the psalmist is speaking poetically as if this must be the food that they eat in heaven, because that's where it came from. And angels' food would simply be a reference to food that inhabitants like, of heaven, like angels, would have eaten. But, yeah, you, you have to be careful not to take poetry and press it into some kind of literal uh, didactic uh, teaching device, because poetry is for emotional value. Uh, the stories it's referring back to are historical stories from the historical narrative portion of the Bible. But poetry and songs and things like that are almost always impressionistic and, and flowery and, and uh, you know, not, not bound to a literalism. And that would be the case here. Okay, I do appreciate that answer. Have a nice day. Thanks for helping me out. Okay, Louis, thanks for your call. Uh, Doug from Lincoln, California. So far, three calls from California in a row. Hi, Doug. Welcome. Hi, Steve. Um, hey, I'm reading in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And uh, it's it's kind of scary when you, when you read that passage in 23 where he says that, you know, Jesus says, get away from me, I never knew you, those who break God's laws. And, and, and I'm thinking... Who who is he talking to? I mean, Christians. Uh, who? It's it's kind of confusing a little bit to me. Well, he's he's talk. He says, "In that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, mm -hmm. in your name we we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did many mighty works." Now, who are these people? Well, he's talking about in that day, which I take to be a reference to the final judgment. It seems like the most reasonable conclusion. He's talking about on the day of judgment when people have to present themselves to him and answer for their lives. And so, in other words, this is a day that hasn't even come yet. And therefore, the people that are described could be from anywhere. I mean, anywhere during the history that they, they, uh, you know, they named the name of Christ. They called themselves Christians. And they even did things which they regarded to be activities they were doing as Christians, but they weren't real Christians. And, what, you know, he introduces that whole thing by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. So when he goes on to say they say they prophesied, they cast out demons in his name and, and did those things, obviously he's suggesting that those things can be done without it being the will of God. Or it can be done by people who are not committed to doing the will of God. Uh, because, of course, nobody does the will of God every moment of their life. Even the Apostle James said we all stumble sometimes. And, uh, you know, Paul said he wasn't perfect. So, I mean, these guys are the most mature Christians of their age, the most spiritual Christians of their age, and they don't claim to be perfect. But, but the, uh, the assumption is that a Christian is someone who's devoted to doing God's will instead of their own will. 
And it's not so much referring to a certain number of acts that are performed that are good deeds, like getting Boy Scout brownie points or something, or, you know, merit badges. Uh, it's, it's rather that the person who is living his life to please God and to do God's will is a true follower of Christ. A person who is, you know, not doing that may do any number of Christian things and might even regard himself to be a Christian. But if he's not, if he's doing his own, if he's living his own life according to his own plans and his own agendas, he's not one of those who's committed to doing the will of the Father. Now, if we ask, well, what is the will of the Father? There's a very similar verse to that one in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, where Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things which I say? Now, over in Matthew, which you quoted, he said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And many will say, Lord, Lord, we did these things. And Jesus says here, well, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Obviously, uh, to do the will of the Father, which is the term he uses in Matthew 7, is the same thing as doing the things that Jesus says, obeying him. And, of course, a Christian is somebody who has surrendered their life to the lordship and the kingship, the authority of Christ. And when somebody has done that, of course, they are committed to doing what he said. And, and if you say, you're my, I'm your Lord, but you don't do what I say, what's up with that? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, we might ask very reasonably, how could somebody who's not really a Christian actually prophesy and cast out demons and do mighty works in the name of Jesus if they're not the real deal? And to that... Jesus gives no answer. He doesn't even raise the question. He just says there will be people who've done such things. We might conclude that people might do those kinds of things, uh, you know, uh, in rebellion against God. Not, I mean, not that they are outwardly thinking of themselves as re rebellious, but they're doing these things for motives other than true Christian motives. And that God honors the name of Jesus, even when it's used by some people who aren't followers of Jesus. Remember... Remember, uh, the disciples came to Jesus once, I think it was in Luke 9, in one, in one of the Gospels, uh, and they said, Lord, we saw some men casting out demons in your name, and they don't walk with us. They're not part of our company. And Jesus just said, well, don't forbid them. Anyone who casts out a demon in my name is not going to be, he's not going to come against us and oppose us, so let's just leave him alone. But it's interesting. These people were not followers of Christ, but they were apparently and Jesus didn't question this, casting out demons in Jesus' name. We also know, of course, that there are demonic counterfeits of miracles. And a lot of times people may think they're casting demons out in the name of God uh, or even the name of Jesus. Because honestly, there are many parts of the world. Uh, I don't encounter this kind of person so frequently in America. But if you go down to Latin America or Africa, some places where there's a uh, you know, whole whole countries practically identify themselves as Christian, uh, but they're mostly uh, either Roman Catholic or Pentecostals. In many cases, they don't have much theology. They don't have much Bible study, they, but they have got a real fascination with miracles and supernatural things and speaking in tongues and things like that. And I could easily imagine that people who are involved in those things, including some of the you know, evangelists and so forth that do those things, uh, might not even might not have a real clear idea of what it really means to be a follower of Christ or a Christian. But, you know, again, Jesus doesn't tell us how it is they do these things, and we can only speculate. But 
uh, whether we discover that or not, we know this. Jesus is saying that the ability to do such things or the apparent ability to do these things in no way uh, demonstrates that you're a Christian, which means that when you go to a, a church that has a lot of emphasis on these things and, you know, they claim a lot of miracles and stuff like that, uh, whether their claims prove to be true or fake, and, of course, probably both categories exist, uh, you can't really make any decision from that of whether these people are really spiritual Christians or not. The real question is, are they living in obedience to Jesus? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I say? That's what the Father wants you to do, is follow Jesus and obey him. So, um, it, it, you said it's a scary passage. I have often said that passage is the scariest passage in the Bible that I know of, because it certainly indicates there's a lot of people, a lot of people sincerely seem to think that they are following Jesus, but they've been misled about what it means to follow Jesus, and they have the impression that doing you know, sensational things in the name of Jesus somehow qualifies them. But if they're not living obediently to him, they're not what the Bible calls a Christian at all. Yeah, I just want to make sure that my walk, I'm obedient. You know, when you read these passages, you're kind of like, wow. I mean, it kind of makes you take a it, it does look seem, at yourself sometimes. Yeah. It does seem that that passage should have that effect on everyone who thinks they're a Christian. Yeah. Doug, thanks for your call. I need to take another call. We're running on low on time. Thanks, Steve. Bless you. Great to hear from you. Uh, Steve from Beaverton, Oregon. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Say, so, yeah, I have a question regarding uh, the trajectory method of Bible interpretation and application, modern-day application. Can you tell me your thoughts on that? I'm afraid I haven't heard uh, of a... A, a system that 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 wears that label. So I'm not sure what it's referring to. Can you describe it to me? Sure. Well, let me give some background. There's a there's a local church, very well regarded, uh, definitely a Bible believing, Christ following church, and they they dealt with this issue of of women in the role of elder, and um, where they ended up going was that. It, it made sense to move forward with the idea of having women in, in elder roles. And they had a pretty lengthy process on how they got there. And uh, when it was all said and done, one of the things that they um, used in their approach was what they called this trajectory approach, where they were saying how that, that the Bible over time uh, created these trajectories of kind of ethical, moral values Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just as things progress in the Old Testament and the New Testament, things change regarding, say, slavery. Okay. I got and you. Reduce slavery today. Yeah, that's kind of what I. That's kind of what I imagined it meant. I just never heard anyone call their view that. Yeah, I mean, there are people who say, well, you know, nothing in the Bible condemns the institution of slavery, and yet all Christians today believe slavery, uh, slavery was an evil, and of course it was Christians who spearheaded the, the abolitionist movement in England and in America. It was largely the influence of Christianity, even though the Bible, which the Christians followed, didn't mention slavery itself being bad. It was clearly seen that the Bible teaches that we should love the disadvantaged, that we should do justice and have mercy and, and things like that, and that the application of those general Christian ideas to social institutions 
naturally enough caused people to say, well, then we shouldn't allow slavery, which was a very good application of those principles. Now, uh, a lot of people think that, you know, the old-fashioned ideas about slavery are somehow in the same category as the old-fashioned ideas about men and women. Uh, the difference is that uh, there never was a time when Christianity approved of oppression of women. Uh, obviously, you know, a lot of Christians had a blind spot about slavery, even up until the 19th century, and, and weren't even aware or hadn't thought it through that slavery was contrary to biblical concepts. But, uh, but there are no biblical concepts uh, about, uh, about women and men that represent a, an oppressive attitude. You know, I think that it's true, as we apply the biblical concepts of justice and mercy and things like that, we're going to see many things in society that are, do not conform with those principles in which we should stand against. Uh, abortion, for example, is murder. And now, of course, people knew that in biblical times. It's our, our, our times are the ones that have lost sight of morality. Uh, almost all Christians throughout history knew it was wrong. But, uh, but I mean, to apply you know, the biblical ethic of, uh, you know, protecting the innocent, uh, you know, honoring, you know, all life, including little children, as Jesus did, and, uh, and just the general forbidding of murder. You know, the application of those principles, though the New Testament doesn't describe or, or specifically condemn, uh, you know, abortion, obviously biblical principles clearly do. Now, when it comes to women in leadership, before we decide that there's any biblical principles that, that are violated by maintaining, let's just say, a male leadership in the church or a patriarchal structure of the home where the father's the head of the home. Uh, we, you know, it, which biblical principles are they that are, uh, that are uh, violated by that? None that I know of. Now, if they say, well, because Paul says that there's no male or female in Christ. Yeah, well, he also said there's no Jew, no slave or free, and yet we know that Paul didn't interpret his own words to mean abolish slavery. Uh, and uh, although he did tell slave owners to treat their slaves as brothers and with justice and so forth, so Paul totally abolished any abuse in the institution of slavery. But uh, he didn't by saying there's no male or female or no slave or free in Galatians chapter three. He certainly was not understanding his own words to mean uh, abolish these differences, abolish these institutions. Uh, no, and when Paul did talk about male and female roles, he actually gave a, his rationale, which was a very biblical rationale. When he said that the, he didn't put women in the leadership of the church, he clearly understood that church structure should resemble that of a family and that God made the man first and put him in charge of the family. And therefore, Paul thought that should be reflected in the uh, church leadership. Now, I don't know of anything that we've learned since then that would make that unjust or unloving to women. Why, why would it be unloving to women to structure the church uh, like a family? Um, now, if it says, well, it holds women down from leadership, this, rep this, this very objection represents a complete under misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches about leadership. Jesus said those who are in the highest leadership well, they don't hold office like the rulers of the Gentiles do. Now, I know in the institutional church that has come to be the case, that the leaders hold some kind of political power in the church over the other people. That's something Jesus frankly forbade. He said, that shall not be so among you. He said, 
among you, the one who's the chief is the slave of all, the servant of all. So if a woman or a man wants to be the chief in the church, let them be the slave of all. God, you know, Paul never, never regards women as incapable of being servants uh, or men as servants. That's the chief role of the, the highest role that Jesus recognized. Um, but, but if we're talking about being uh, overseers or elders, you know, unfortunately, these roles evolved into political power positions in institutional churches, but they weren't in Paul's churches. They weren't in Peter's churches. They weren't in the early church because they weren't institutionalized. The church was a family, not a, not a hierarchical power structure. But it was still true that because the church was like a family, uh, you know, the, the male leadership was, uh, was maintained. Now, if someone says, well, male leadership even of the family is, uh, we know better than that now. Uh, do we? Uh, do we know that God set up the family in such a way that it, that it doesn't matter at all who's in charge? That is, who's the head, who, who's in leadership? Now, if someone says, but women are oppressed by patriarchy. No, they're not oppressed by patriarchy. They're oppressed by bad men. The church is not supposed to have bad men. I know it does because it doesn't require them to be saved. The, the church in the early days required people to be converted. And people who are converted have the spirit of Christ. They don't oppress anybody, especially their wives and their children. So, I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, that this trajectory of Christian influence is supposed to eventually eliminate all varieties of functions for people. I mean, let's face it, the Bible makes it very clear children and adults are equally valuable to God, but they don't have the same function in the home. Children still have to submit to their parents. So to have equal value before God is not the same thing as to have exactly the same function in a, in a social institution. Anyway, those are my thoughts. I need to take a break, I'm sorry to say. I don't like breaks, but I have to take one in, the, in this hour, and it's at this point. But, Steve, thanks for joining us. Uh, you're listening to The Narrow Path. We have another half hour coming up, but we want you to know The Narrow Path is listener-supported. You can help us if you want to by going to our website, thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in just 30 seconds. Stay tuned. If you call The Narrow Path, please have your question ready as soon as you are on the air. Do not take much time setting up the question or giving background. If such detail is needed to clarify your question, the host will ask for such information. Our desire is to get as many callers on the air during the short program. There are many calls waiting behind you, so please be considerate to others. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the, or the Christian life, a couple of our lines are open now. If you'd like to call, the number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. And our next call comes from Drew in Corpus Christi, Texas. Hi, Drew. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, hi, Steve. My question is about postmillennialism uh-huh. and kind of the, the culture of postmillennialism. I, I'd like to know your general thoughts 
on postmillennialism, but also why it seems like the partial preterist view of Revelation is more closely associated with the post-mill view than the on-mill view, and also why it seems like every post-millennialist I have encountered is a Calvinist. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a great question. Uh, certainly there's nothing about uh, preterism that would require post-millennialism as opposed to amillennialism. Both, both views are compatible with uh, partial preterism. But you ask why it's more often associated with post-millennialism. For those who don't know what post-millennialism is, it's the belief that prior to the return of Christ, the church's mission of converting and discipling the world will be uh, immensely successful uh, to the point that the whole world will be essentially Christian, but not necessarily every last person, but societies will have become, as it were, Christian. The, Jesus will be formally recognized, uh, just like it was the case in sometimes in Europe's history, uh, only hopefully with a better form of Christianity than they had then. But uh, the point is that uh, as Christianity has, in fact, transformed whole societies in a good way, uh, that it can, as it continues to go forward and more and more people uh, submit to Christ and begin to obey Christ, then you know, the number of people who are Christians will be clearly the vast majority. And at that time, of course, then people who run for office will mostly be Christians too. And so you'll start getting Christians, uh, you know, Christian leaders. You'll have Christian school teachers. You'll have Christian entertainers. I mean, Christian journalists, uh, Christian artists. I mean, that basically every aspect of culture will have come under the influence of Christianity in a good way. And they believe that that is simply the power of the gospel continuing on the the previous call used the word trajectory, uh, continuing on the same trajectory as it's been for the past 2,000 years, and uh, and that the world, when Jesus comes back, will have largely been conquered by the gospel, and most people will be Christians. Now, m- most people who are not post-millennial say, well, I don't see how that could possibly be. As time goes by, Christianity is receding in terms of influence and so forth. But that judgment is based on what we see in America and Western civilization. It's not based on what we see, for example, in China or Korea or in uh, you know, South Saharan Africa or Latin America. In those places, Christianity is growing much faster than the general population, sometimes by a factor of two or three times as fast Christianity is growing. So, I mean, if, if we're very provincial and only aware of what's going on in our corner of the world and we see, oh, Christianity used to be more influential you know, three generations ago than it is now. Um, well, we're not seeing the big picture. The Right now, a third of the population of the planet identify as Christians of some sort or another. Now, I don't, I don't recognize all, that all those people are real followers of Christ, but it's just interesting that 2,000 years ago, only about 120 people in Jerusalem believed they were following Christ, but they spread out until now one-third of the human population names the name of Christ as, uh, as at least a nominal uh, to, to being their, their Lord and King. Now, uh, the idea of post-millennialism is we're in no hurry. Uh, you know, yeah, things are going kind of backward in this little part of the world, but it's had its ups and downs throughout history, and it'll have ups again. There are troughs, and there are spikes in the influence of Christianity, but 
all in all, the net result of history so far has been toward the advance of Christianity to be more and more influential. So the post-millennialists sometimes will say, we might be in the infancy of the church. You know, we, we here uh, our, our, you know, popular prophecy teachers indicate we're at the very end of the age. And maybe we are, but the post-millennialist says maybe we're not. What if the church age is going to last for 10,000 years instead of 2,000 years? If so, who knows how much the gospel may advance and how much impact Christianity may have. And, and they believe this largely because they understand some prophecies in the Bible as, uh, as indicating this. I won't go into those prophecies now, but they, they, it's not as if they have nothing to go on. It's just that all the different views have something to go on, and they do too. Now, why is it that, why is it that um, the preterist view of Revelation is advanced mostly uh, or by post-millennialists and, uh, and, and maybe somewhat less so by amillennialists? Well, the one reason, I think, is post-millennialists have a vested interest in preterism, which amillennialists do not in the same sense. Amillennialists do not predict that things will get better or worse. All millennialism is not a prediction about the end times. It's basically an interpretation of prophecy as having to do with the church age, but not really making a prediction about whether things will go better or worse over time. That just, you know, we're just living during the time of the of, of Christ's uh, you know kingdom, which will persist until He comes back. Whether things get a lot better or worse or stay the same is not really inherent. Uh, as a part of uh, millennialism, but post-millennialism is in excess, in, in excess, which in itself, it is optimistic about the future. Now, if you take Revelation as a description of the future, all the judgments and plagues and Antichrist and so forth, well, then, of course, you're going to have a hard time being optimistic about the future because Revelation depicts very, very dark times. And if you believe Revelation is talking about the end of the world, well, then that's kind of how you expect things to end really badly until Jesus comes back. But the, uh, the preterist view holds that Revelation is not really about the end of the world. It's about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was very dark and very bad and very chaotic and very horrible. But it's not about the end times, according to that view. And if it's not about the end times, then it doesn't give us any reason to be pessimistic about the end times. And since post-millennialism is itself the only view of eschatology that is necessarily optimistic, they have a vested interest in Revelation not being about the end times, because that would kind of go against the optimism. Again, amillennialists can believe in pre, uh, uh, partial preterism, as I myself do, but it's not demanded by their amillennialism. And so that would be, that'd be my thoughts about why it's found more. Now, you said, why are they mostly Calvinists? They're mostly Calvinists because they come out of the Reformed movement. Uh, uh, Post-millennialism was early on embraced by Reformed theologians who happened to be Calvinists. And because they are Calvinists, they also believe that God ordains everything that happens uh, and, and nothing can happen except God foreordains it. And therefore, if someone says, well, what are the like, what's the likelihood the whole world would be converted? Well, if you happen to be a Calvinist and a post-millennialist, you'll say, that's irrelevant. If God wants it to be so, if he's decreed it to be so, it's going to happen. Uh, God's sovereign. You know, so the high view of God's sovereignty would be helpful in guaranteeing that some future generations will, in fact, be converted. 
because in Calvinism, God's the one who decides who will and who will not be converted. And if he has decided that most people will be, then it'll happen. That's, that's why Calvinism works really well with post-millennialism. But you don't have to be a Calvinist to believe uh, any of these things. You know, I mean, to be amillennial. Uh, amillennialism is more popular among Calvinists, too. Um, the, the, the view that's not as popular among most Calvinists is uh, dispensationalism, which sees Revelation as, you know, a picture of the last seven years of the world and a very dark one at that. So that's why these different views are more or less open to uh, or maybe even dependent on a partial preterist approach. Do you think postmillennialism is plausible or do you think it's very unlikely? Well, I don't say it's implausible because I believe it could happen if God waits long enough. Like I said, the, the trajectory of history is that direction. Whether God wants to wait long enough for that or not, I'm not sure because I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily see that the scriptures used by postmillennialists are uh, must be understood in the way they understand them. I can see what I can see how they can be. I can see how they can be understood that way. I mean, uh, perhaps most impressive of all is when Paul says uh, in in First uh, Corinthians 15, where he's talking about Christ is currently reigning at the right hand of God. He says, and He will reign until He's put all His enemies under His feet. Well, if all His enemies mean every last person who is opposed to Him is going to be subdued to Him, and then He's going to come back and he's reigning from heaven until then, that sounds very post-millennial. But, I mean, I don't have time to go into the obvious, uh, you know, other possibilities, but there are other ways to interpret that. But, uh, but no, it's, it's, in, it's entirely plausible. Uh, the problem is, though, that there are passages about the end times in which I see not just the book of Revelation, because I am partial preterist about Revelation, but I see Paul and uh, maybe Paul mostly, and, uh, and some other places in the Bible indicate, even some of Jesus' parables, suggesting that when he comes back, there's going to be an awful lot of opposition he'll overcome. Uh, the sheep and the goats suggest that when he comes back, you know, there's going to be sheep and goats. Uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares suggests when he comes back, there's going to be a lot of tares as well as wheat uh, and so forth. So I see Jesus suggesting that at the judgment, there's going to be a lot of people coming up uh, who were in many cases, living at the time of his second coming, who were not Christians. And so I'm, I'm not dogmatic, but I'm, I'm, I'm what they call an optimistic amillennialist. But optimistic, in my case, does not necessarily mean that the world's going to get better, but that the church is going to get holier. The church is going to get more unified. The church is going to become more what Christ intends for the church to be. I'm optimistic about that because there are, in my opinion, some strong scriptures in favor of that. Thank you, Steve. Okay, Drew. Good talking to you. All right, let's talk to uh, Gary from New Jersey. Hi, Gary. Welcome. Uh, hi, Steve. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, uh, the question I have uh, this evening or this afternoon is, um, do you think um, in Romans ten fourteen it says that, how can they hear without a preacher? It says, first of all, whoever call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, but then it says, uh, "How can they hear without a preacher? And how, you know, how could they hear about this unless someone, I guess, tells them?" Do you think I met someone not too long ago, and that's how I got saved? I, I was witness to, and so on and so forth. And um, it took a little time, but I got saved thereafter. I'm born again now. So, um, do you think that the Lord 
could work directly with people. I met one man not too long ago. He said I was door dashing, and I, I gave him a track. He said, oh, he says, I, I woke up one day, and I just started going to church. I said, did somebody witness to you or something, like I'm talking to you now? He said, "He said no, I just got up, and uh, I looked out the window, and I saw the sun, and I just, I just desired to start going to church. So you think the Lord could save people directly if they're willing to say yes to him? Well, well, God certainly has saved people rather directly, like Saul of Tarsus, for example, on the road to Damascus. I mean, he wasn't listening to a sermon when Jesus appeared to him from heaven and blinded him and, and revealed himself to him. And he apparently was converted as a result of that. I have a friend who's probably listening right now and who calls the show sometimes who was converted uh, when he was alone in his kitchen. He wasn't listening to any sermons. And I, I, I'm not sure he even remembers having listened to sermons anytime recently before that. Uh, it was just kind of a unilateral thing. And uh, and yet, in both of those cases, I, I seriously doubt that my friend had never heard a sermon. And I was, he'd no doubt heard of Jesus before. Saul of Tarsus had heard Stephen preach and had therefore heard of Jesus from a preacher. Even this man that you mentioned, uh, he, he on his own, he decided to go to church. And, and it may well be that God's Holy Spirit you know, prompted him to do that. But I doubt that he got converted until he heard the gospel preached and responded to it. So... Um, while I, I'm not going to say God can't appear to somebody who's never heard of Jesus and, and lead him to Christ. I will say this, that uh, Cornelius had an angel appear to him, but the angel didn't preach the gospel. He sent him to sent, send messengers to Joppa and get Peter to come down. He'll tell you words uh, you know, that'll, that, by which you can be saved. So an angel appeared to him, but didn't preach the gospel to him. He just told him where he could find someone who would. So we don't, I don't really know of any cases where somebody who lived in a land where, where no one had heard of Jesus and where they themselves had never heard of Jesus, they just, you know, without knowing who Jesus was, they just got converted. Um, are there cases like that? Maybe. You know, we do read of, uh, or hear these days of Muslims uh, in some villages like in North Africa and in the Middle East uh, who, who may really have known very little about Jesus at all, except that Islam does teach about Jesus. It just doesn't teach the truth, but it teaches positive things about Jesus. Islam teaches that Jesus was a great prophet. Not quite what Christianity teaches, but it's still a positive thing. And we know many Muslims have had dreams. Sometimes the report is that everybody in a village has the same dream, and in the dream Jesus appears to them, and they, and they all pretty much convert. But it's not clear to me that they are hearing for the first time about the existence of Jesus, they may have known about him from Islam or whatever and just come to realize more about who he was by those dreams. In any case, uh, obviously, I believe that no one really gets saved at all unless the Holy Spirit is somehow involved. But Paul is saying that certainly the norm, and one could not reasonably expect it to be otherwise in any given case, is that someone becomes a Christian because they've heard the gospel preached. And that's... That's what I believe Paul is saying. He's not necessarily arguing that no one has ever gotten saved without hearing the gospel, but uh, but he's simply saying, you know, how can we expect people to to respond if they aren't preached to? And I think that's a reasonable Amen. question. I agree. Even if there are cases where they do. Okay, thank you for your call. Let's talk to Kimberly from Sacramento, California. Kimberly, welcome. Hi, Steve. Thanks for taking my call. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you know where it's at in the Bible. I, don't, I just don't have it um, open right now. But I'm calling um, to get clarity on the scripture that refers to that when the Apostle Paul talks about but women will be saved through childbearing. And it, First Timothy always, 2, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, can, we, can you read that for me? Well, um, I'll turn there one oh. moment. Um, <laughs> just a moment here. Um, he starts by saying that he does not uh, permit women to be uh, in the teaching and authoritative roles in the church. Um, okay. And in this respect, I think he's talking about to be uh, the elders of the church. And he says in verse, uh, let's see, that's verse 12. And he says uh, in verse 13, uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, he said, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay, so he's referring to only Eve? Well, I don't think so. Some people interpret it that way. Yes, some people apply it to Eve. I don't think that's what he's doing himself, but... He does mention Eve, but uh, and, and but he's How talking can about, someone that doesn't have children be safe? <laughs> if well, we're he's safe not childbearing. He, he's not saying that anyone anyone at all is going to go to heaven by having children, unless he is referring to Mary, which I don't think he is. There are some interpreters okay. who say, well, she will be saved in childbearing. I mean, she Mary, who's a, a sort of like. Uh, an emblem of womanhood or a, uh, a representative of womanhood, just like Eve was. Uh, some people think that Eve is like Mary, and uh, and that through childbearing, Mary not only was saved herself, but uh, but all people are capable of being saved by her childbearing. In other words, by Jesus being right. born. That's how some people understand it. I don't see it that way. I don't think the wording works well for that particular interpretation, though it's commonly taught. Um, I think what he's saying is that uh, women can get themselves into trouble just like men can, and Eve is a good example of that, but they can also uh, be recovered as, as men can. And in, in the case of women, uh, that recovery uh, is uh, assisted by childbearing. Now, he's not saying that a woman who never has a child can't be saved because elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about women who are virgins are actually in a very good position to serve God with all their heart and so forth. But he's assuming virgins don't have any children, of course, <laughs> other than Mary. But, uh, but you know, what, in what sense is he talking about being saved? See, I don't believe he's saying that, uh, you know, uh, people are saved by works, and the particular work that a woman has to do to be saved is to have a child. Um, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's, when it comes to talking about being saved, uh, the Bible actually has a much broader definition of salvation than we sometimes hear in churches. We think of salvation, I mean, you get your sins forgiven, you go to heaven when you die. That's being saved. Well, that part is part of salvation we call justification. But the Bible actually Mm -hmm. has every bit as much, if not more, to say about the other parts of being saved, like being sanctified, being obedient, uh, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Uh, Having this, you know, uh, this is a much more common theme, it seems to me, in the epistles, for example, and certainly in Jesus' teachings, uh, being saved means becoming restored to your proper relationship with God, which means uh, not only that your sins are forgiven, but it means that you 
come under his authority. That's the proper relationship that a person can have to God. Any, any less than that is not a proper relationship with God. How can you have a king that you're not submitted to and be in a right relationship to him? So, I right. mean, the whole, the whole idea of salvation <laughs> isn't just going to heaven when you die because you got your sins forgiven. Salvation, in Paul's language and in many other New Testament writers, is the whole package of being restored to proper relationship to God. And that includes, according to Matthew 1, in the words of the angel spoken to Joseph, uh, he said his name should be called Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. So salvation isn't just from hell, it's from your sins, from the bondage of being in sin. Jesus said, if you continue in my words, this is John eight thirty one and following, uh, Jesus said, if you continue okay. in my words, you're my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they said, well, how can you say we're going to be made free? We're not in bondage to anyone. And he said, well, whoever sins is a slave of sin. Words, that's, you need to be set right. free from that. So salvation isn't just from hell it, and from the penalties of sin. We're saved from the bondage of sin. And, and that is the process of sanctification and being changed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. It's whole, the whole Right, right. The whole disciplinary now, that part, process. That I understand. Now, that being so, that, that being so, part, can a woman, yeah, Paul, sees, Paul sees motherhood as a state which can have that benefit to a woman, that is of her becoming more Christ-like and less selfish and more yeah. free from her sinfulness, if, he says, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And that is, just having babies isn't going to do it for you. But if... <laughs> If yeah. you, uh, you know, cooperate with God's providence in, in giving you children and you raise them and you keep pure and you keep, you know, loving and holy and, and self-controlled, well, then I believe this is the means through which you are being uh, experiencing salvation. And, and, and like Paul says in Philippians, work okay. out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Thank now, I, it's, it's interesting here uh, that this comes up because just yesterday we had a, a, a young woman in our home as a guest. And she has a beautiful uh, teenage daughter, and, she, and, the, and the daughter was conceived out of wedlock and born and raised out of wedlock. This woman's never been married, but she was a wild child, as she says, when she got pregnant. And she was uh, living sinfully and rebelliously against God. She was smoking and drinking, using drugs. And she said she accidentally got pregnant, and when she learned she was pregnant, she suddenly realized, oh, I've got to stop drinking. I need to stop using drugs. I need to stop, you know, smoking. I need to stop doing these things because of her concern for the child. Now, that's not getting right. saved, but she did get saved shortly after that. But it, you see, just getting pregnant made her take seriously her responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I've had, I've had a number of mothers tell mm -hmm. me that they were just selfish people until they had babies. And they never had anyone right. they cared for more than themselves until they had a baby. And, and that raising a child yeah. and making the mm -hmm. sacrifices, that that changed them. That That made them into... Less selfish, more loving, uh, you know, people. Now, if they are Christians and they're continuing, as Paul says, in faith and love and holiness and self-control, then this this mothering, this child uh, bearing and child rearing uh, role is a, is a very uh, fruitful environment to encourage a person's development into the image of Christ. And I think that's Amen. the salvation that he's mm -hmm. talking about. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, Kimberly, good talking to you. Let's talk to uh, Sergio from Maricopa, Arizona. Sergio, welcome. Hey, uh, Steve. Um, in Leviticus 19 or uh, 18, it shows 
basically to not be intimate with uh, your wife if it seems that uh, she's on her cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of get the idea that, you know, on, in the Old Covenant, there's kind of like a dietary law and then, um, you know, so that law can be passed. But it seems like in verse uh, 27 and 28, it seems that um, even – or even verse 26, too, that foreigners and those who are uh, residing among the Israelites um, would also be defiled if they did that. And I think verse 27 even says um, – for all these abominations. Yeah. Okay. So I, yeah. I'm just wondering if that's something that should be practiced today, because I think Paul says to not defile the, the bed. Yeah. I, you know, some people might think that this, this restriction against sexual intimacy during a woman's period uh, is given for hygienic reasons, in which case it might be good advice to follow today, just like they say that about you know dietary laws. You know, don't eat pork and shellfish and so forth. People have written books arguing that this is for hygienic reasons and therefore we ought to still do it. Well, it may well be that there are hygienic reasons for it but that and maybe that's a good practice. I don't know, but it's not a required practice. It's not a moral practice. Um, you know, in other words, there may have been good hygienic reasons to not eat pork, but the Bible says specifically in the New Testament that no food is unclean of itself. And that uh, you know, God made all things to be uh, enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. So, I think that I think the blood aspects of the law—you know, avoid a woman in her blood, avoid eating blood, and those kinds of things—are primarily uh, ritualistic. The avoidance of contact with blood—I uh, mean, there might be a hygienic basis for it, but I believe these are ritualistic requirements, and I believe it's the rituals that go out with the new covenant. And there's, you know, it's not a religious duty. A person might still think, oh, there's, there's wisdom in doing this, and, and I see wisdom in it from what God said, and may choose to do it. It's like keeping Sabbath. Some people say it's good for you to keep a Sabbath. Well, then do it, but don't make it a religious duty because that's a ritual. <clears throat> that's not a moral issue. I'm sorry i got to go. I only have 10 seconds before I'm gone here. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Narrow Path radio broadcast. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us.